Please note, rewards offered are subject to change or expire. To the author's knowledge, reward amounts are current and valid as of this episode's air date and may be subject to terms and conditions. Please confirm all reward details with the relevant case authority listed in the show notes. Welcome back to Reward Offered, a true crime podcast looking at unsolved Australian cases that have financial rewards for relevant information. I'm your host, Amanda, and today we're wrapping up our deep dive into the murders of Wendy Evans and Lorraine Wilson at Murphy's Creek on October 6, 1974. We certainly haven't covered every last issue that's concerned me while researching this case, but I wanted to mention a few final ones before we wrap up the series. I'll share with you my personal assessment of one of the biggest elements of the case, the Range Road sightings. We'll also look at avenues of inquiry I believe still have hope of unearthing some relevant information, as well as discussing some crucial and further baffling evidence from external sources that will really highlight just how strange this case is when you peel back the layers. So far I've been referring to an alternate theory, but that doesn't really accurately describe it. It isn't even necessarily a theory of innocence for the persons of interest officially listed. At its most basic, it can be summed up in a simple question. What is going on here? I really struggled with deciding what was the best way to present this final episode and how to wrap up the case, at least for the moment. So I'm going to include how my researching of this case has unfolded, and then you'll understand a little more of how I've arrived at this final episode in the series. One thing I know for certain is... This will not be the last time we discuss this case. If any of the details of this case cause you distress, please reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or a relevant crisis support service in your local area. I had already completed recording what was initially the first episode for this case. Even at that point... There was glaring issues to me, at least with what information was available in the coroner's report. I just couldn't see how he was coming to such firm conclusions with the evidence I was reading. By pure chance, while scrolling through a Facebook group focused on Australian cold cases, I came across an old post about Lorraine and Wendy's murders. Reading through the comments, I came across a surname that immediately caught my attention. Laurie. Many people were reacting with the standard response, insinuating that this woman was blindly defending guilty men due to her own biases. But it was good to see that many were also defending her right to her own opinions. Gradually, as I came across more of her comments, I realised that many of the concerns she was raising coincided with points that I'd made note of from the coroner's report that just didn't align for me either. This woman was so certain that police had gone down the wrong trail at some point that she had spent months researching and writing a book about what she knew to be true from her first-hand relationships and experiences with many of the men spoken about throughout this case. I was curious where this lorry fit into the story, so I opened up Facebook Messenger and sent my first message to Judy Laurie. To her credit, even when she knew I was seeking information for the purposes of a podcast, she didn't try and push her beliefs. She graciously helped me with accessing a copy of her book and said she hoped it helped me with my podcast. Given her first-hand knowledge of the persons of interest in the case, as well as being well acquainted with them at the time of the murders in question, 
I was interested in what she would have to offer. I read the book overnight and was genuinely impressed with the amount of information she had collated. While researching this case, I noticed a psychological bias that seems to be present in many true crime cases, where if someone is related to a suspect and they implicate their relative, there is often an assumption that they must be telling the truth, because who would betray their family? Their own blood. I think we often, even if subconsciously, give more weight to this relative's information because it seems to come at the price of betrayal. On the other side of the coin, there seems to be an often automatic assumption that someone defending a relative and claiming their innocence, well, of course they would do so. They're too close. They're blinded and just can't see what the evidence shows. Their information is devalued, using the very same connection we use to justify the pro-valuing of the critical family witness. I think that More often than not, due to the presence of additional direct or indirect evidence, it can be quite easy to see when someone is in fact too close and just doesn't want to accept the evidence and inevitable truth. But in my assessment, I can honestly say that after all the interactions I've had with individuals linked to this case, I don't have any inkling that that is what is occurring here. I can't comfortably say that this case is as open and shut as I was initially led to believe, by both the coroner's findings and much of the media coverage of the case to date. While I don't want people to see this as me undermining the police or the coroner and their stance on the case, I'm sure some will. And I'd be lying if I said I hadn't considered and feared that covering the case in such detail, in this context, might cause a resurgence of pain for the families of Lorraine and Wendy. But I couldn't in good conscience tell myself, or anyone else, that I'd done an unbiased, balanced coverage of the case and information without pointing out the issues with the official narrative as they appear to me. I have to show all sides of this. As I've already said, I have absolutely no idea who murdered Lorraine and Wendy. But if it was any of these persons of interest, in the least, I think it's only reasonable to want and expect the evidence to satisfy that conclusion, not have the evidence be the reason questions arise. That's been the most interesting thing to note when looking into this case, The fact that the vast majority of my questions were raised purely from the information found within the official documents themselves, even before any external sources were introduced to me. So that's how I decided to present it, with the first three episodes discussing the official material and what it seems to me to indicate or not indicate. No matter who is responsible for murdering Lorraine and Wendy, the goal remains the same. Find the evidence who proves who did it. We need people with all possibly relevant information to come forward, not just people with evidence against the identified persons of interest. It's one thing to be in Judy's position, having known most of these people in some capacity, and to be familiar with how this many names and their corresponding relationships interact. It's quite another to try and remember it all on your first or second pass. It has a feeling similar to being back in school, trying to cram for a test to be able to readily recall any necessary information at a moment's notice. Because to know what's relevant, what's important, and what are the right questions to ask, you have to know the case inside and out. And I'm not there yet. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it all. I don't doubt I've probably made mistakes, but I've done my best to validate all the information and to make the story as cohesive and palatable as possible. As I've said previously... My role here is not to tell you what to think. My goal is to give you all the information that I can find available 
and leave it up to you to decide what the evidence and information indicates. In order to accurately assess for yourself how you feel about any information offered by Judy, we should start with how she fits into the broader picture. She is a lorry through marriage. Her husband Arthur, or Artie, was a half-brother to Shorty's father, making him Shorty's uncle, even though he was younger than Shorty. This scenario is often found in larger families where aunts and uncles can often be younger than their nieces and nephews. That also makes Artie Ungi's brother, meaning Ungi is Judy's brother-in-law. There is going to be a couple of times where I include information that is first-hand knowledge or memory of Judy's. Yes, it is possible that she is recalling something incorrectly, but given this entire case is based on witness memories, I think it's a fair playing field. It's possible anyone and everyone is making mistakes in their recollections. Also, yes, it is possible that she could be deliberately attempting to falsify facts and information. Firstly, I've seen nothing to indicate that she is doing so, nor do I believe she would go to all the trouble of researching and collating all the information for a book only to try and change information to suit the persons of interest, when in fact, all these points of evidence would be investigatable by police, and as such, possible to be proven incorrect, if such was the case. Given Judy claims to have been pressing the police to consider her information for almost a decade, all the while being ignored, I find it silly to think that she would be purposefully misconstruing information that police could either easily verify or invalidate. We'll come back to some specific information from Judy and another source at the end of the episode. In the meantime, I've already pointed out a number of issues that stood out to me as we worked through the coroner's report, but let's look at a few more I want to mention, in no particular order. One of the first concerns I had with the coroner's report was errors. Now, I realise that we're all human and mistakes get made, and that's totally fine and understandable. But if somebody from the community wanted to learn more about this case they would likely be drawn to the only source of official information that is publicly available, as I was, and that's the inquest findings. So I think it's reasonable to expect that the information in this document should be accurate. Inconsistencies with car models and descriptions, witnesses being labelled with the wrong name, these may seem small, and on their own maybe they are, but this is how cases and what is considered fact within them gets twisted over the years and we have to do better at ensuring there is at least one account with all the correct information. For example, when talking about Boogie's multiple-time boss, Mr Shum, in episode 2, I referred to him as Neville several times, as this was the name attributed to him in the coroner's report, but I've since been made aware that his name is in fact Neil. Also, both Mrs Murphy and Mrs Britcher are indicated to have the given name Rose, when in fact this is only Mrs Murphy's name, Mrs. Britcher's first name is Valma. Now, again, I'm certain I've made my own mistakes while covering the case, and anything I become aware of having gotten wrong, I will correct. But I don't like the lingering doubt that this has created in my mind as to the accuracy of details found within the coroner's report. Let's talk about the other pair of nurses we mentioned in episode 3. Information listed in Eric's first book, but never mentioned in the coroner's report, indicates there are two other unidentified would-be victims who could likely offer very relevant information. According to Eric, the wife of the couple who owned the land where Lorraine and Wendy's bodies were found had indicated that at a time she believed was about three to four months before the murders of Lorraine and Wendy, two other nurses had escaped an abduction attempt near the same tragic spot. According to her, 
these nurses, who were locals from Toowoomba, had run into their homes screaming at about midnight after escaping a group of men near the vicinity of the body site. The girls had jumped from the assailant's vehicle and tore across the paddock to the safety of the couple's house lights. She said her husband was alive at that time, and they had both watched as the vehicle slowly stalked back and forth across the paddock, seemingly looking for the still-terrified, yet now also relieved, women. It's incredibly important that if this account is accurate, that these women come forward if they're still alive. Who attacked them? What were the details of the attack? When we look at Peter Rogers' statement, given that we now know there was possibly a different set of nurses who may have escaped from either the same or a nearby paddock to that Lorraine and Wendy were found in, perhaps only months prior, it becomes at least a possibility that these could have been the two nurses who were in the vehicle at the service station, the vehicle that Mr Rogers saw Kerry Thompson get out of. It would be interesting to know what time of day Rogers believed he had had this interaction to see where it would fall on a possible timeline, just as it would be interesting to know what day of the week these other two nurses had made their supposed escape on. Was it a Saturday? If so, maybe Rogers was right that the service station interaction was on a Saturday. Without that additional information, I think it's at least a possibility that it could have been the other two nurses, not Lorraine and Wendy. Why is this possibly pertinent? Because none of the men identified by Rogers as being in that car are any of the persons of interest listed in Lorraine and Wendy's case. I mentioned in the first episode the coroner acknowledging that a number of people had come forward claiming to have met two nurses at a party in Toowoomba. We've already identified that these could possibly be referring to a different set of nurses, as no time frame is mentioned for these sightings. However, the coroner mentions one witness who specifically says that one of the nurses he saw at a party told him they had hitchhiked from Brisbane and were going to Gundawindi to collect a car. I also mentioned that the coroner was of the opinion that these reports were made so long after the events, although this seems to be the case for the vast majority of witness statements in this investigation, and the reports lacked such detail that they couldn't be relied upon. Now, we don't know what the other witnesses said, but with regard to the individual that supposedly mentions two nurses, hitchhiking from Brisbane and collecting a car from Gundawindi, I hardly think we can accuse him of lacking details. He gives three very specific pieces of information that we know to be hard facts in the case. You could, of course, question his credibility, or perhaps believe he is just making up the story of this interaction using publicly available information. But again, a lack of detail isn't his problem. It would certainly be interesting to hear what other information, if any, this witness in particular had to offer. What were the details of this party? Where and when was it? Who was present? Did he see the nurses leave? And if so, with who? One location of a possible party that may have occurred on the day in question is Picnic Point. It isn't mentioned in the coroner's report, but according to Judy, there was often parties held at that location, and in Eric's book, he indicates that the woman believed to be Lorraine told Mrs Sperling in the laundry that they had just been at a party at Picnic Point. Was this the party the previous witness was referring to? The one where he claims he saw two nurses, one of whom said they were hitchhiking from Brisbane to Gundawindi to collect a car? Unfortunately, we just don't know. But it is another possible location that might prompt a memory from someone about something they might have seen. So I'm including it. Now we come to a huge rabbit hole I fell into while looking into this case. I have no idea if I spent a week of my life trawling through the intricacies of this information, making spreadsheets and drawing, rather poorly might I add, 
Mock layouts of witness sightings for nothing. But in any case, here's what I crawled out of the hole with. The range sightings are consistent, yet inconsistent. When comparing the statements, I started to notice possible patterns across some of the accounts. So I made up a spreadsheet that included various possible evidentiary elements of each sighting, to see which of them aligned. I kept the sightings that involved a couple as a single sighting because their statements were always more or less consistent. So, with that in mind, we have six sightings described in the coroner's report. The Beatles, Melvin Oliver, the Murphys, the Britches, Robert Styler, and Peter Trowka. Factors I included for comparison included the believed date or year of sighting, time of day, whether they specifically ID Lorraine and Wendy, descriptions of vehicles, descriptions of men, and any other items of particular note. If you want to look at this spreadsheet as I go through it, pause here and go to one of our social media pages and you'll find a copy of it. The data in the spreadsheet is all taken from information I found in the coroner's report and Eric's second book combined. No doubt there is additional information in the witness statements that would add more pieces to the puzzle, but this is what we have to work with right now. The coroner in his findings seems to explain away differences in the Range Road witness accounts by attributing them to the passage of time. But we've already established that this isn't believed to have been a one-off occurrence, that it is considered fact that a group of men in Toowoomba and the surrounds would kidnap or abduct women, rape them, and usually release them. When looking at the spreadsheet, I started to consider, what if all these witnesses saw exactly what they say they did, when they say they saw it, rather than explaining away evidence that doesn't align, as simply an error in their memory? Could one or more of these sightings involve women other than Lorraine and Wendy? Initially, I had the six sightings grouped in pairs, mostly due to the time of day they believed the events had occurred. But as I looked at it more, they began to appear even more individualised. This is purely all speculation on my part, and I too could very well be trying to put together pieces of the puzzle that don't join. But here's what stood out in my mind. Let's start with the two sightings of the six that I personally feel are more likely to have been referring to not only the same incident, but are also the most likely out of all the sightings to have been Lorraine and Wendy. These are the accounts of the Britches and that of Robert Styler. Here's my reasoning. The Britches have a memorable life event to act as a time marker in their minds. A six-month-old child who was sick and, at least according to them, hospitalised during September and October of 1974. Mrs Britcher says she would travel up and down the Toowoomba Range every day to visit her child in the hospital. Because her husband would work during the week, he would only accompany her on the weekends. Given they were both in the vehicle at the time of the event, this would support the idea it took place on the weekend. She says she can further narrow it down to the weekend of the 6th and 7th of October, or the weekend prior. We know Sunday was the 6th, so it would have technically been the weekend of the 5th and 6th. But a quick correction here. I now believe I was wrong in episode 3 when I stated that Monday the 7th was the Labor Day public holiday in Queensland. It was in a couple of other states, but apart from a brief switch to October in 2013, which was only temporary for a couple of years, the Labor Day public holiday has always been the first Monday of May in Queensland. That also means that my comments in episode 3, of if it wasn't a public holiday, that most individuals would have had a workplace to be at, children to get to school, etc., revert to being relevant, because it would have just been a usual work and school day. This is pertinent to Desi's claims about all these men being present on the Monday morning for this apparent car cleaning scenario. But back to the range sightings and the britches. 
they say they witness a struggle about 9pm. Robert Styler estimates he saw a struggle sometime between 8pm and 10pm. What else do we know to be happening around this time? Officer Ian Hamilton reports arriving at the Ukana Vale Youth Camp just after 9pm after receiving reports of two women screaming. We know the youth camp was located approximately halfway up the uphill section of the Range Road. It would certainly be interesting to know how far down the downhill section of the Range Road the Britches and Mr Styler saw their respective events, particularly given that while the different sections of the road never meet, they did come close to each other at certain points. Unfortunately, the road has been altered since, and it's impossible to see the location today, as it would have appeared in 1974. To Judy's recollection, on the downhill section at that time, there was possibly a couple of pullover spots about halfway down, and maybe near the bottom of the range. If there was in fact pullover spots on the downhill, at about the same altitude on the range as the camp, it would make it more likely that the screams heard at the youth camp could possibly have been coming from the struggling women, believed to have been seen at approximately the same time, on the other side of the range road. To play devil's advocate, the only piece that doesn't fit with this theory is that if Ian Hamilton left Toowoomba at the top of the range, travelled down the range to then come back up the range to the youth camp, you would think he would have to have driven right past the scene unfolding, given the screams are still occurring when he arrives at the camp. I don't know where he was dispatched from, though. If he was at the bottom of the range when he headed for the camp, he wouldn't have passed the scene, meaning the two events could still align. According to Judy, there was other ways to get to the camp, but if he had left from the top of the range, she says that going down and then coming back up would have been the quickest route, making it his most likely. There is more similarities between these two sightings. Of the six total sightings, these are the only two that specifically ID one or both women. Both girls in the case of the Britches, and Wendy as the woman closest to him by Mr Styler. Both sightings describe two men, two women, and one vehicle. The vehicle models listed by the Britches and Styler are slightly different, but as previously discussed, these two cars, a pale green 63 EJ Holden and a faded green possible EH Holden, could easily be referring to the same vehicle as they are so similar. With Mr Styler's statement, he only describes one of the men he sees, saying he knows him as Boogie Hilton. However, we have the coroner himself questioning Mr Styler's ability to identify Boogie at that time in 1974. All this calls into question, though, is the IDing of Boogie being at the scene, not the event itself or any of the other details reported by Mr Styler. Perhaps in the least, we can say that one of the men he saw at the scene he claims to have witnessed looked similar to Boogie Hilton. Another point I found interesting was Mr Britch's comment at the inquest that there had been a vehicle both in front of and behind them as they went past the scene in question, and he couldn't understand why they were the only ones who had come forward. Perhaps they weren't. Given the similarities, I think it's at least possible that one of those vehicles may have been Mr Styler's. Not to mention that the description of two men, two women and one vehicle, being a light green EJ or EH Holden, matches the description of what Doherty sees. It's important to remember, though, that it's possible the women went to a party at some point on the 6th, and it is certainly possible that the people with the women could have changed at any point throughout the day. However, conclusively identifying anyone seen with them at any point on the 6th is crucial to filling in the pieces of the puzzle. With regard to the other four sightings, when looking at the breakdown of the different elements in the spreadsheet, 
there just doesn't seem to be enough details that align with one another to indicate, at least to me, that any of these are likely to be the same event. The Beatles say their event occurred in either 1973 or 1974, in the early afternoon about 2 or 3 p.m. They list more men present. Six. They also mentioned pillows and clothing all over the road. If all of these witnesses did see the same event, I would think at least one of the others would mention seeing items scattered around the vehicles. Melvin Oliver says the event he witnesses on the range occurred somewhere in the early to mid-70s, and the day is having been in late September or early October, and the time is being around 2pm. Two of the men he sees in the Grey Holden that pursue him aren't wearing T-shirts, a claim not made by any other witness. He is also the only sighting that sees two women bound in any form. Further, when shown photos of the cord from Lorraine and Wendy's crime scene, he said he didn't believe it was the same rope he had seen being used on the women on the range. The rope he saw was more akin to a heavier, perhaps woven cotton rope, not the thinner cord seen in the photos. You'll find a photo of the piece of cord which was photographed on the ground at the crime scene on our social media. Finally, and perhaps most telling, according to his statement, the woman made no attempt to call out to him for help, despite him slowing to investigate the scene. The Murphys, according to the coroner's report, couldn't indicate what day, month or even year their event most likely occurred. From the information disclosed by the coroner, their statement has almost nothing conclusive to add. They say the incident they witnessed occurred around dusk. There was two women, neither of whom they identify as having been Wendy or Lorraine. There was two men with a vague description of only one given, and there was one vehicle present, yet no description of the vehicle seems to be supplied. The only element consistent with any other sighting is a woman repeatedly screaming for help. The last sighting is that of Peter Trelka. In his 1989 statement, he initially tells police that the incident he saw occurred in 1973. At the inquest, he now says it could have been any time between then and November of 1974. Other information appears to change over time also, though. In his accounts, one vehicle seems to go from being grey to being green and white, or perhaps vice versa. And it seems by his own description, he never passes the scene and follows the vehicles from a safe distance. So if that's true, he never gets anywhere near as close to the men and women as the other witnesses that indicate they drove right past the scene, sometimes quite slowly. And yet from his vantage point atop the range or from a trailing vehicle, he claims to identify either four men, going by the coroner's report, or five men, according to Eric's book, including apparently IDing Ungi by his hair lip from these distances. In the very least, I would be interested to hear the recollections of Trelka's passengers, Donald Collins and the unidentified man, regarding the incident, if in fact either of them are still alive. The description of the event Jeffrey Nuttall witnesses on the uphill section of the range is certainly worth noting, but of more interest to me is his claim that he was told by police in the 1990s that they didn't require the number plate he had noted from the incident he saw, as they already knew who these people were and didn't require the rego because they already had it. Who did police know to have done it in the 90s? Did they even check the registration plate from Nuttall at all? Or completely disregard a possible piece of evidence? Again, and this is a crucial point to make, any, all, or none of these sightings could be related to the murders of Lorraine and Wendy. But in the very least, if any of these events didn't take place on the 6th of October 1974, they could still possibly point in the direction of men who would be inclined to engage in such activities. 
I think it's also important to note that if there was a group of men attacking women regularly, it doesn't necessarily mean the same men, number of men, or the same vehicles were present at each incident. This, I believe, could possibly account for the differences in the Range Road witness accounts. The alleged rape victim's statements which the coroner says he used to validate the existence of this predatory group of men, to my mind, only supports this notion. The details of all three vary greatly. Anne claims to have been raped by a single individual, Shorty Lawrence, in a light-coloured sedan. Supposedly, she also claimed to have seen another man, who hadn't participated, but who was with Shorty when she was raped, at a Melbourne Cup function in Toowoomba in approximately 2003. By this time, Shorty, Boogie, Donnie Laurie and Larry Charles are all dead, so it wasn't any of them. And according to Judy, Ungie, Jimmy and Desi Hilton had long since moved away, so who was the man Anne saw? Gail describes three men, with no specific car description apart from the missing handles and winders, She names Ian Laurie, Gordon Laurie and Shorty Laurie, although, according to Judy, in 1969, the year Gail says this attack occurred, Shorty Laurie, the person of interest, was living in Nundal, New South Wales at the time, a a six-and-a-half-hour drive from Toowoomba. It doesn't mean he wasn't there, but could suggest it would be less likely. While perhaps more difficult today, at the time this would have been easily verifiable or disputable by police. Kerry-Ann mentions a single individual, a man whose first name she believes is Laurie, but who she just knew as Shorty. This man was apparently a logger and was driving a truck. So even among these three assaults, the numbers of men, who they are, and the vehicles, all vary. The entire official theory of this case in many ways hinges on the claim that these seven persons of interest were a gang or group of men that got around together regularly. Except according to Judy, they didn't. They certainly knew each other, but there was animosity between several of the men, to the point where not only did they not hang out together, but some actively avoided others where possible. For example, remember Ungie's chuckle and throwaway comment at the inquest about Shorty not liking Hilton? This is consistent with Judy's claims that Boogie and Shorty were certainly not mates, and that only months prior to the murders, on his way into a house to meet a verbal challenge from Trevor Hilton, Shorty attacked Boogie on the front veranda as he passed by, knocking him down the flight of stairs. And according to Judy, Boogie was never welcome at either Shorty or Shorty's father's house, and she, along with others I've spoken to, agree that the notion that Boogie and Shorty were in some sort of gang together is ridiculous. I wanted to talk about the rope found at the crime scene briefly. The coroner's report says it was, quote, very similar to that used on Venetian blinds, end quote. Now, when I look at the photo of the rope, in my mind it looks too thick to be from a set of blinds, unless they're referring to the material or texture, but that wasn't the gist I got. Apparently, a long-time worker from the KR Darling Downs Bacon Factory confirmed with police that the cord was used in the factory. The coroner then indicates that both Boogie and Shorty worked there at some point. When I questioned Judy about this, though, she didn't believe that was correct. She agreed Boogie worked there a couple of times over the years, first in 1969 when he was 14 for just under a year, and once more after the murders in 1979, for again just shy of a year. How likely was it he had stolen a piece of rope from his workplace and held on to it for five years before using it in a double homicide? Regarding Shorty, she hadn't been able to find any indication he'd been employed there, or anyone who knew him that remembered him working there, including his wife who said she was sure he hadn't. 
So I looked into it further and reached out to a source with access to the employment records for KR Darling Downs at the time. Remember how we said that sometimes it's just knowing what to ask? They confirmed the employee name registered was Alan Laurie, but when I asked what date of birth had been provided, I didn't get the answer I was expecting. It was a date in 1955. I already knew Shorty's birthday was the 6th of October 1952, and that Ungie's is September 3rd, 1949. Knowing Judy had spent a substantial amount of time mapping out the family tree over the years, I asked if she had a birth date for the third Alan Laurie. No, she said. Only a year. 1955. I'm still trying to confirm the day and month of the third Alan Laurie's birthday. Unfortunately, the world seems to be giving me some pushback on finding the information. Judy even sent me a photo of his cemetery plaque, but there's no birth or death dates listed on it. In any case, I think it's looking likely that he is the Alan Laurie who worked at the bacon factory, not either of the persons of interest who share his name. And if that's the case, either police didn't know who the evidence they were utilising actually referred to, or it was just convenient that it pointed to one of the deceased persons of interest. I spent some time focusing on the rope itself, and after falling down a small rope rabbit hole, the closest thing I can find that when googled brings up the most similar-looking images to that of the rope at the crime scene is three- or five-millimetre sash cord, and the crime scene rope appears more cotton than nylon to me, but it is difficult to tell through a photo. I wanted to retouch on the 60 Minutes three-part series for a moment. I grew up watching 60 Minutes as a kid. Every Sunday night, it was a part of our family routine to watch that week's episode, and I've always thought it was the pinnacle of investigative journalism on Australian TV. I watched the three-part series on Murphy's Creek prior to reading the coroner's findings, and then again after reading it. I was disappointed the second time round. Up front, they claim that the three-part series is a result of a 12-month special investigation. To be honest, I expected more from a year of investigating with the resources they would have had at their disposal. Spoiler alert. In the first episode, they claim it is, quote, almost certainly Shorty and Boogie, end quote, in the vehicle that picks up the women. But we've already discussed that it being those two men doesn't align with either of the descriptions at Oxley. Remember, the bus driver says both men he sees have fair hair, and Doherty describes one with dark hair and one with blonde or sandy brown, medium-length straight hair. Even the very photo 60 minutes display on the screen of Boogie and Shorty show that neither of them come close to matching the fair hair descriptions, so I have no idea where this certainty is coming from. They interview Trevor Hilton, but fail to mention that there are witnesses that accuse him of being involved, this being Shirley Withers, and others that claim Trevor himself at one point was confessing to being one of the murderers. Nor do they mention that the only person Trevor ever indicated he thought was acting suspiciously regarding the murders was Donnie Laurie, who was also his stepfather. When talking about Mrs Sperling's sighting, they claim, quote, only years later would she identify Wayne Boogie Hilton as the likely driver of the car, end quote. But that's not what Mrs Sperling said at all. According to the coroner's report, she said the photo of Boogie was of, quote, similar appearance to the man that she saw. That is a vastly different distinction to her saying that the man she saw was likely Boogie. In the second episode, they refer to the contents of Des Hilton's 2008 taped interview with Detective Johnson, but don't acknowledge the distinct changes throughout his three interviews over the decades, 
or that he seemingly attempts to retract all the information from his previous statements at the inquest, under the guise of memory loss, saying he now couldn't remember any of those things happening. They also interviewed Desmond Edmonston, one of the only two men in the whole case whose entire testimony the coroner completely dismisses, saying he didn't accept him as a witness of truth. Why give this man, discounted entirely by the coroner himself, any airtime? Although he does tell a rather fanciful story about a sausage, claiming Shorty bit off his own father's ear over said sausage. When I asked Judy about the story, she told me it was rubbish and that Cecil Sr. still had both his ears when he died in 2011. She then sent me a photo of Shorty and his father later in life, where you can clearly see Shorty's dad has both ears. I'll include that photo on our social media. I don't think I need to explain why Edmonston's additional claims of multiple grown men pulling over on the side of the road only moments after leaving the scene of a double murder in order to slice their thumbs open for the purposes of engaging in a blood pact seems unlikely. It is then claimed that the girls were, quote, savagely gang-raped, end quote. I would love to see what evidence they believe indicates that, especially given the coroner himself states there is no evidence to suggest either woman was raped. In the third episode, I thought they might have been onto something. When Jimmy is confronted, he is asked if he ever owned a green and white EJ or EH Holden. In the same rapid-fire responses he's been giving the entire time, he says no. They then pause to indicate that in a 2009 police interview, that Jimmy admitted to having owned a 1964 Holden sedan that was green with a white roof. On the screen, they show a 2012 police document that seems to be a report by Detective Johnson updating his superiors as to the current state of the case. They then zoom into a paragraph detailing information relating to Jimmy O'Neill. What they fail to note verbally is that the following sentence of Johnson's states that Jimmy said he traded that vehicle for a white Valiant and that he suspected it was prior to the time of the murders. They then show a photo of Jimmy, leaning on the boot of a car that certainly appears to be a green and white E.H. Holden, and claim, although don't state how they know so, that the photo is from the mid-1970s. When I sent a screenshot of the photo to Judy, she said she couldn't remember Jimmy owning that vehicle and that she had no idea when the photo was taken. One thing we did ascertain, though, is that the photo in the very least wasn't taken in 1974 prior to November. For two reasons. The first, Judy sent me a photo of Ungie's wedding, which took place in November 74. It clearly shows Jimmy with hair almost to his shoulders, which means that the photo of him with short hair leaning on the car can't have been very recent to the wedding photo because it would have taken time for his hair to grow out to that length. Secondly, in the photo taken with the EH, you can see a tattoo that looks like a strip running horizontally across his left forearm about halfway up. I'll include the photo of him with the car as well as the wedding photo and a still shot from the 60 Minutes episode that shows what I believe is the same tattoo on his left arm. That left forearm tattoo isn't present in the November 74 wedding photo, so the photo with the EH is almost certainly taken after November 1974. Now, of course that doesn't mean that he didn't own that vehicle back in October of 1974, but the photo itself, especially given we can establish it was taken after the murders, isn't proof he did, nor is it proof it's even his vehicle he's leaning on. The coroner himself noted what a common make and colour scheme it was at the time, Again, it's a great line of inquiry to pursue, and I'm working on trying to establish if that vehicle with that number plate was indeed Jimmy's, 
and if so, when? But inferring the photo itself is proof of anything when it isn't doesn't help us find the truth. Given my comments regarding the series, you may think I would tell you not to watch it, but I think you should, if for no other reason other than to appreciate some of the cracks in this mirror. It's heartbreaking watching Wendy's sister Susan and Eric touch on regrets about choices they did or didn't make that they perceive may have impacted the outcome for Lorraine and Wendy. Personally, I dislike the distortion of information and evidence that seems to me to have occurred during the series. It may have made the story more scandalous, more juicy for the viewers, but it certainly didn't help spread accurate information about the case. 2024 will mark half a century, 50 years since these murders took place. Many of the named persons of interest are dead. Many of the witnesses are dead. Regardless of who committed the murders, if they aren't dead, they likely soon will be. When we reach the point of no witnesses and no suspects left alive, we lose all hope of any justice. But this case isn't a black hole with no light. Do I believe the answers to solving Lorraine and Wendy's murders are found within the information we've shared over these last several episodes? Yes and no. I don't believe with what we have that we could possibly know what unfolded on the 6th of October 1974. But I do believe that one or more persons out there has information that could put the pieces of the puzzle where they belong. While I can't identify a clear, likely picture of what happened, I do believe we know several evidentiary points that aren't dead ends, And if that's all we have to work with, then we focus on those. And you may be able to identify some that I haven't. There is almost certainly more individuals who witnessed an event or events on the Toowoomba Range Road or other locations, whether on October 6 or at other times. Remember, it is thought that there was a group of men who engaged in this behaviour regularly, sometimes even alone. Even if you don't believe your information to be relevant to this date or case, it could still hold a missing piece of crucial evidence. Is there people that saw Lorraine and Wendy at a party in Toowoomba? Anyone who has seen something that may be relevant needs to come forward with their information. Any woman or women who were attacked under circumstances similar to those discussed in the case so far, even if the offenders aren't any of the listed persons of interest, could hold information from their own experiences, which could prove critical and relevant to solving these murders. If you can find the will to do so, Please come forward. Where did Miss Sandercock get the information she provided to police in her 1989 statement? As the only individual within the coroner's report whose account is almost entirely consistent with the known physical evidence in the case, it's certainly a crucial question. The way I see it, there's two options. Either this woman has direct knowledge of corroborated information in a double homicide, or she is possibly one of the most fortuitous storytellers in true crime history. I mentioned previously that I had additional reason to question Miss Sandercock's memory issues that she claimed to be suffering at the inquest in 2013. This is because she was also a witness at another coronial inquest, this one looking into the 1989 murder of 15-year-old Annette Mason, who was bludgeoned to death in her house after a night out with friends. At that inquest, held in 2018, I can find no indication that Miss Sandercock alluded to any memory issues. She seems to easily recall conversations with multiple people that occurred in 1989 regarding that case, and yet in 2013, at the inquest into Lorraine and Wendy's murders, she could recall absolutely nothing from her conversation at the hotel with Ellen, which she says occurred in mid-1984. At least to me, the stark differences in her memory recall within a five-year period 
don't seem to line up. This would likely indicate that the coroner was right, that she feared either retribution or prosecution for anything she might say. I can empathise if this woman is afraid, but the details of her original statement are already public, and I struggle to understand her apparent reluctance to rehash the encounter. It would be easy to write the whole thing off as having been a story, but given the accuracy of certain details and how closely they align with the known evidence, that's incredibly difficult to do. It's tough to say what the motive in this case was. The cash that Lorraine is known to have had on her is gone, assumed taken by the perpetrators, but all the jewellery known to be on, or at least with the girls, is left behind. Someone actually leaves behind extra jewellery with the dress ring. And strangely, from what I can tell, every piece of jewellery is found in or several centimetres under the dirt around the bodies. Why remove the jewellery from the women, but not take it with you? You would think if robbery was the motive, the jewellery would be missing. Yes, the cash is gone, but I doubt Lorraine would have been flouting its existence. I think it's more likely it was a surprise find by the perpetrators when they were going through the girls' belongings. The only other likely possible motive is rape, of which we have no evidence available publicly that would suggest any took place. No proof it didn't, but no indication it did. Otherwise, did one or both women overhear or see something they shouldn't have? I don't know, I just can't see anything that stands out above the rest as the obvious motive. I mentioned it briefly earlier in the episodes, but there are many people who believe this case may be linked to another group of murders, known as the Gold Coast hitchhiking murders. There are certainly obvious commonalities. The women were hitchhiking, and they are found bludgeoned to death. But I'm still not convinced. From what I understand... Those women were all found either entirely or partially naked, which doesn't seem to align with Lorraine and Wendy's case. We will no doubt cover the Gold Coast hitchhiking murders on the show in the future, so once I've taken a closer look at those, we can discuss why they may or may not be related to Lorraine and Wendy. I have zero doubt in my mind that there are still individuals alive today that not only know the details of what happened to Lorraine and Wendy, but know exactly who the culprits are. Perhaps they were told confidentially, overheard something, or were asked to be a false alibi. Maybe they saw someone covered in blood spatter who had no good reason to account for it. No matter how they know, now is the time to unburden their souls of this secret. And if their conscience can't convince them, maybe $250,000 might. Did I mention you can remain anonymous? Speaking of remaining anonymous, in his first book, Eric mentions the only anonymous calls his parents ever received about Lorraine's murder. The first call, which Eric estimates occurred around approximately 1990, was answered by Betty and, according to Eric, is said to have gone something like this. Hello? Is that Lorraine's mum? Yes, it is. I've been trying to find your number for a long time and now I've found it. Is it possible I can speak with your husband? I can hardly hear you. Yes, I know. I'm speaking low because my wife told me not to get involved. Can I speak to your husband? He's not here. I feel I must speak to him. I'll ring back tomorrow night. Ladies and gentlemen, my parents. Apparently it was two nights later that the second call came through. Eric says this conversation with his dad was also brief, with the general sentiment being that the caller didn't know who to trust, both within the authorities and his associates, and that he believed Lorraine's father had the right to know certain things of his daughter's demise. It was information he wouldn't share over the phone, though. The anonymous caller closed with, 
If I'm ever down your way, I'd like to stop in and see you. But he was never heard from again. If this man or his wife are alive and privy to information, it's not too late to still make a difference. Please come forward. I struggled momentarily with whether or not to include information from external sources, for fear of listeners disregarding all the previously discussed issues within the official narrative, due to a perceived bias for any additional information provided by those sources. But I have faith that you, the listeners, can compartmentalise and evaluate all the information, including that from different sources, for what it is. I told you I would give you all the possibly pertinent information available. So I am. Apart from being well acquainted with many of the individuals referred to in this case, Judy also has another significant claim with regard to one particular person of interest. She is almost certain that on the 6th of October 1974, she, her then-boyfriend Artie, Shorty Laurie and his brother nicknamed Strawberry, were together from, she estimates approximately early afternoon to sometime between 7.30 and 8pm, while the men went rabbit hunting near Texas, Queensland. Now, admittedly, it was only sometime later that she had any reason to try and recall what date this outing had occurred on, but she does have some specific events that she says have helped her to narrow the timing of this event to that date. And if her recollections are accurate, she is an alibi witness for Shorty Laurie for the afternoon and evening of the murders. Here is how she says she narrowed down the date. In late September 1974, Judy, who was almost eight months pregnant at the time, and her then-boyfriend Artie moved into a flat at 161 North Street, Toowoomba. Strawberry was helping them move, and asked them questions about who they were renting through and the cost. A few days later, Shorty Laurie, his partner Janelle and their 20-month-old daughter moved into the flat next door to Judy and Artie. On a date she believes was the 5th of October, her and Artie went over to Shorty's where Shorty and Jimmy were having some drinks. At some point, Shorty thinks Jimmy is trying to crack onto his wife and violently attacks Jimmy. Throughout our discussions, Judy has made no attempt to paint Shorty in a glowing light. She admits he was quick-tempered, violent, and herself heard of him striking his own mother, who she believes Shorty never forgave for putting himself and his siblings in a home at one point. Through a 2021 lens, we now have a greater understanding of cycles of domestic violence and abuse, along with cycles of addiction. Many of the men in this case are said to have grown up in homes with the presence of both violence and alcoholism. This is not to excuse their behaviour for things they are known to have done, but the fact that they too may have exhibited many of the undesirable traits and behaviours often associated with being raised in such environments certainly doesn't automatically mean they were rapists and murderers. In any case, the gathering at Shorty's quickly comes to a close, and Judy and Artie return to their own flat. The next day, Sunday the 6th, after speaking with Shorty out the front of the flats, Artie comes inside and tells Judy that Shorty had offered to take them rabbiting, she had mentioned the night prior that she had never been, and her perception was that the offer from Shorty to take them was an apology of sorts for the events of the previous night. She says that afternoon, the four of them headed to Texas, which is about a two-hour drive from Toowoomba. She says that about dusk, they started hunting rabbits, Artie blinding them with a spotlight, Shorty shooting above their heads to daze them, and Strawberry running out to grab them and wring their necks. She says the rabbits weren't shot directly so as to prevent putting holes in the pelts. At one point in the evening, they are crossing a small creek in Shorty's blue and white E.H. Holden when the engine stalls and the car starts to drift. The boys have to get out to start pushing the car 
and Judy says she has a distinct memory of sitting in the back of the car, thinking to herself, here I am in the middle of nowhere, eight months pregnant floating downstream, and I can't swim. Eventually Shorty gets the car started and they safely cross the creek. Judy says that while driving down dirt tracks on their trip home, the car starts to fishtail as Shorty is clearly in a rush. With seatbelts not yet a feature of vehicles, and a heavily pregnant Judy being thrown about in the back seat, she asks Shorty what the rush is. He tells her it's his birthday and that his parents are having some family over for a party for him. She remembers saying, So it is. Happy birthday. When they arrive back at their flats, Artie and Judy disembark. Cecil runs into Shorty's flat to get Janelle and the baby, and the four of them then head off to Shorty's parents' house in Mount Lofty to celebrate Shorty's birthday. Ultimately, it is the combination of her being eight months pregnant with her daughter, the incident with the floating vehicle, the mention of Shorty's birthday, and the fact that they only ever lived next to Shorty at those flats, from which he later moved out of about mid-December, that allowed Judy to narrow this day in her memory. Regardless of if you find yourself questioning Judy's motives or memory, one comment she made to me has certainly stood out. This woman and her now husband were related to and live next door to one of the persons of interest, Shorty Laurie, at the time of the murders, yet they were never contacted by police or questioned. After the persons of interest were named at the inquest and Judy realised they may have relevant information, including being alibi witnesses, both herself and her husband voluntarily submitted statutory declarations to police unprompted. These are dated the 25th of July 2013. Almost 10 years later, and they're still yet to be asked a single question about the case, despite numerous attempts by Judy to make contact with authorities over the phone and by letter. In one letter dated 6th of July 2013, she attempted to inform police that Shorty Laurie and Shorty Lawrence were in fact two different men. And just because I don't think we've had enough confusion so far in this case, I wanted to clarify that Shorty Lawrence's surname was actually spelt L-A-U-R-Y-S-S-E-N-S. But it seems that locally... Many people, whether by choice or accident, pronounced it Lawrence. And if you know us Aussies, that is definitely something we would do. In the same letter, Judy notifies police of Shorty's potential alibi for October 6th, as well as noting several more inconsistencies she had noticed in relation to accusations against the other persons of interest. If police believe they have evidence contrary to what Judy claims, then why not just tell her that? I wouldn't find them disagreeing with her odd. They could very well, and no doubt, no information she doesn't. But I do find it a little odd that their approach to her multiple attempts to provide information that doesn't align with the official narrative is just to ignore her. Eager to prove his innocence, Ungi also presented for a polygraph examination. This was not a test given by police, but rather through a third party, administered by Gavin Wilson, of Australian Polygraph Services, on the 5th of September 2014, in a Brisbane Qantas Club meeting room. Myself and Judy don't necessarily agree on the level of weight this test provides Ungi in his defence, but I will acknowledge that in the very least, his willingness to undertake one certainly counts for something. In a letter from Mr Wilson, which he explains his credentials, training, the procedure used, and his opinion on the results, he says he has conducted polygraph tests on homicide suspects for several state police departments in Australia, and has also conducted polygraph tests for 60 Minutes, A Current Affair, Today Tonight, and Foxtel. The letter states two relevant questions were employed. R6. 
Did you have any involvement in the deaths of Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans? Response, no. R9. Do you know for sure who killed nurses Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans? Response, no. Finding. No deception indicated. In the opinion of the undersigned, Alan Laurie's polygrams showed no strong or consistent unresolved responses to the aforementioned relevant questions. It is the opinion of this examiner that Alan Laurie was truthful when he gave the above indicated answers to relevant questions R6 and R9. Now, do I believe this conclusively proves Ungi had nothing to do with the murders? No. I am, however, intrigued by his willingness to take one, especially given that most people unfamiliar with true crime, I imagine, are still under the presumption that lie detector tests count for more than what they do. There's a good reason they aren't admissible in court, but I do believe they can be a useful tool for law enforcement. I will include a copy of Mr Wilson's letter, including Ungi's results, on our social media. With regard to the last couple of issues I wanted to address, I've received additional insight, beyond the concerns raised from within the evidence itself, from another external source who Judy put me in touch with. This being Tracy, the daughter of Wayne Hilton. After speaking with Tracy, it's become even more glaringly evident to me just how important it is to answer the questions in relation to this case. Yes, of course it is important to solve the murders and find justice for Wendy and Lorraine, That goes without saying. But remember the broken mirror? So many other people, not just the girls, have been affected by these murders. Again, I personally can't see the evidence to justify naming these persons of interest. And yet they, or in the very least their families, have been living with the consequences of that decision ever since. Boogie died in 1986. He hasn't lived a day with the stain of murderer on his name. Yet his daughter has along with the rest of his family, and someday soon, his grandchildren will also be bearers of the weight of such an accusation. In the event that sufficient evidence exists to support Wayne Hilton being labelled as a murderer, so be it. But regardless of what he may or may not have done, it is not a burden to be carried by his daughter and grandchildren. Whichever the case may be, whether he is or isn't guilty, they are just as much victims of this crime as anyone else and I don't believe anyone's pain is any greater than anyone else's, just different. Tracy herself has told me that if she ever found evidence that her father was guilty, she would immediately turn it over to police. And for whatever it's worth, I believe her. She's in the process of writing her own book, the focus of which isn't even in clearing her dad's name per se. She's more interested in how the case became what it has. What failed? Who failed? Because just like everyone else, she believes Lorraine and Wendy deserve better. Deserve justice. Due to the fact that Tracy was granted, be it extremely late, leave to appear at the inquest, she was given a copy of the police file, as it stood, up until that point in 2013. Accessing this file came at a considerable financial cost to Tracy, and given the claims that were her dad still alive, he would be charged with the murders of Lorraine and Wendy, upon receiving the file she was expecting to find some sort of bombshell, or in the very least reasonable indication that her father was involved. Except, according to her, there isn't anything in the police file that is any more suggestive of her father's guilt than anything found in the coroner's report. Given she can't share the contents of the file publicly, I asked her about the mere presence of certain items within it. Given that according to Eric, the men's dress ring was at some point lost by police, I asked her if there was in the very least a photograph of the dress ring, 
I was stunned to learn that there isn't. No such photograph exists. Or at least doesn't in the copy of the file she received. Why would no one have ever taken a photo of it? Which got me thinking more about Eric's story about the missing ring. Personally, I naturally fall on the more sceptical end of the conspiracy spectrum, but even the harsher sceptic would have to agree. This is strange. I don't find it odd that Lorraine's family don't receive the dress ring. It's evidence. Given the families of both women don't ID it, the assumption is that it belonged to a possible perpetrator. So again, I don't find it odd in the slightest that it isn't given to them. But what they do receive is strange to me. If they had just received a sealed envelope with Lorraine's ring and police said, we kept the dress ring because it's evidence. Zero oddity. But why the piece of pipe? Remember, according to Eric, Betty opens a sealed envelope to find Lorraine's ring and the bit of pipe. He also claims that Betty was present and watched Detective Swindles originally put both rings into an envelope and place a seal upon it. So at some point, that original envelope has to have been opened. My assumption here is that the piece of pipe was of a size and dimension that would act as a stand-in for the dress ring. I can only assume that it being given to Lorraine's family as part of her belongings was an accident. Perhaps whoever sent them the items didn't even know it was in there. Given you can't see inside a sealed envelope, the only other purpose I can think of is for the pipe to insinuate the presence of two rings to somebody feeling the contents through the envelope. Again, the lack of the second ring could easily be explained to Lorraine's family, which leads me to believe that the presence of the piece of pipe was more likely to fool other officers who might handle the envelope. The question then becomes, who replaced the ring with the pipe, and why? How does the only publicly known piece of evidence likely left by a perpetrator of a double murder disappear from police custody, and without explanation? I'd be far more inclined to believe complacent, lacklustre police work would be to blame for the outcome of the investigation and the case as it sits currently, seemingly cold with destroyed evidence and, in my opinion, questionably named suspects, over the notion of any level of police conspiracy or cover-up. However, the year 1974 did catch my attention when first reading the coroner's report, particularly given Toowoomba's location within southeast Queensland. After a not-so-quick perusal of the 630-paid Fitzgerald inquiry, one thing I did find of possible note was that officers whose names would later appear in, and who would feature quite prominently in that inquiry, were relocated to Toowoomba in the early 1970s, and to my knowledge, held positions within the police force there at the time Lorraine and Wendy went missing. The Commission of Inquiry into Possible Illegal Activities and Associated Police Misconduct, which came to be known as the Fitzgerald Inquiry, was an inquest held by Tony Fitzgerald QC. The title of QC, which means Queen's Counsel, is a historic title that would only be applied to lawyers who attained this status prior to the start of the 1980s. The term connotes great respect within the profession and is the highest level of professional recognition that a barrister can reach. Due to a push towards republicanism in Australia during the 1980s, ever since the title has been replaced with SC or Senior Counsel. The inquiry itself was expected to last about six weeks, but by the end of the comprehensive investigation, almost two years had passed between 1987 and 1989. It focused on corrupt members of the Queensland Police Force and their illegal dealings with bookies and bikie gangs in relation to illegal gambling and prostitution, although during the inquiry, the terms of reference were extended to include, quote, 
any other matter or thing appertaining to the aforesaid matters, end quote. This amendment enabled Fitzgerald to further investigate evidence of political corruption. According to the Triple C website, the inquiry, quote, changed the policing and political landscape in Queensland and across Australia. Significant prosecutions followed the inquiry, leading to four ministers being jailed and numerous convictions of other police. Former Police Commissioner Sir Terence Lewis was convicted of corruption, jailed and stripped of his knighthood, and former Premier Sir Joe Bjorki-Peterson was charged with perjury for evidence given to the inquiry, although his trial was aborted due to a hung jury. End quote. It's no doubt a stain on the history of the Queensland Police Force, and they won't like me mentioning it. But unscrupulous individuals make their way into all aspects of life, including the police force as the Fitzgerald inquiry proved. It's unreasonable to expect police to be able to avoid these people infiltrating their ranks. But it is reasonable to expect that once discovered, their actions and any unjustified consequences of their actions be rectified. Let me be clear. I am not saying the presence of these men, including at least one member of the infamous Rat Pack, possibly being located within the Toowoomba police force at the time, means anything untoward occurred in this particular investigation. But on the chance it isn't just a mere coincidence, especially given some of the oddities within the evidence, I can't just brush it aside when considering the case, no matter how much I fear turning away any listeners who may think I'm just looking to find a conspiracy. But I'm not reaching here. I'm not digging very deep, merely scratching the surface to find these oddities, most of which are, as I've already pointed out, documented within the coroner's report itself. I already mentioned that the coroner acknowledges within his findings that evidence being held by police was destroyed in April 2010. The fact that any physical evidence would be destroyed in an open case boggles the mind, but especially considering the staggering ongoing advancements in DNA collection and analysis that continue to arise. And if you thought the destruction of evidence couldn't be any more baffling, take into account when it was destroyed. According to people present, the initial dates of the CMC hearing held in 2010, with respect to aspects of Lorraine and Wendy's case, began in May. I have little faith, given government bureaucracy, that a CMC hearing would occur within several months of an initial request, which leaves us with a timeline that looks like this. Sometime, likely early in 2010, police request a CMC hearing in order to subpoena particular individuals to appear and give evidence. April 2010. Police destroy almost all the physical evidence in the case. May 2010. The CMC hearing, requested by police themselves, begins. As already stated, destroying physical evidence in an open case is difficult to understand. But destroying evidence, a month before the start of a CMC inquest, that you requested, is even harder to comprehend. The oddity of the destruction of evidence is made even stranger, given Tracy's interactions with police over the years regarding her offering to submit her DNA. She says she made an offer to submit her DNA directly to Detective Johnson sometime around 2006, after being told by him that they had a pair of shorts and a pair of football socks in evidence that were located at the crime scene and that he believed belonged to her father. Nothing came of her offer. In 2013, she made the same offer again, this time directly to the detective who by then was in charge of the case, Christy Schmidt, during a break at the inquest. She says Detective Schmidt seemed pleased by the offer 
and told Tracy she would arrange for the DNA sample to be taken while she was in town for the inquest. But then things got odd. Tracy says that within 20 minutes of her offer to Detective Schmidt, Detective Johnson had shut it down, approaching Tracy outside the courthouse with comments like, what would that prove? And we know your dad was a bad man. And so her DNA was never taken. Given the coroner's admission of the items in evidence being disposed of in 2010, and there only being the rope mentioned in the coroner's report, the inference here would be that the shorts and socks were among the items of evidence destroyed in 2010, meaning, with no DNA found on the rope, by 2013, there was no longer anything to compare Tracy's DNA to. Making it fair to question, why wasn't her DNA taken by police when initially offered in 2006, and when the items of clothing were still in existence? As baffling as it is to have no photograph of the men's dress ring, it isn't the only item that there strangely isn't any photographic evidence of in the police file. According to Tracy, there is also no photos of the other piece of rope in situ on one of the women's legs, only the piece on the ground. There is no photos of the shorts and socks mentioned to her by Detective Johnson. I had also asked her to confirm what shirt Lorraine was found wearing, given the previous confusion but there is no photos of the clothing on the bodies to confirm what the women were wearing when found, and only vague written descriptions like top. Why is there so much photographic evidence that seems to be missing? Even if people dropped the ball on taking comprehensive photos of the crime scene in 74, did no one think to take photos of the physical items before they were destroyed in 2010? There is a cruel irony in the contrast between what is believed to have been the second-to-last hitchhiking experience of Lorraine and Wendy, and that which is thought to have been their last. The middle-aged gentleman who gave the girls a lift to Brisbane after their car initially broke down was the epitome of a perfect hitchhiking encounter. Sadly, the courtesy and kindness of this man may have contributed to a false sense of security for Lorraine and Wendy with regard to the dangers of hitching lifts. He had picked up the women about 1.5 kilometres outside of Gundawindi, across the road from the garage where they had left the Beetle. He described Lorraine as more outgoing... Wendy the quieter one. For no real reason, he got the feeling that they were both a little naive and not very worldly. He said the girls seemed like good kids, not dressed provocatively, and were proper in both their conversation and behaviour. Not only did he shout the girls soft drinks at Inglewood, but also a hamburger each at Pittsworth. Lorraine and Wendy told him they simply needed to be dropped in Brisbane and they would make it the rest of the way to Wendy's sister's house on their own. However, the man was uncomfortable with this, and not knowing where he was going stopped to borrow a street directory. He not only drove the girls to Susan's, arriving after 9pm, but insisted the women remain in his car while he personally knocked on the door to verify it was the correct house and that someone was indeed home before he would leave them. Upon verifying they were at the correct address, he helped them with their luggage, wished them well, and this germ of a human continued on his journey. Many men and women hitchhiked throughout the 60s and 70s, Pure luck and chance decided whether it was a good Samaritan driving past that offered you a ride, or if it was an unscrupulous individual who had monstrous plans in mind. As many have pointed out, the era of hitchhiking also coincided with the golden age of serial killers. Why go to the trouble of kidnapping and forcing someone into your vehicle when there are so many people, including vulnerable women, who were more than willing to aid their abductors in their own imprisonment? Today in Australia, Queensland and Victoria have blanket laws against hitchhiking, Other states and territories have stipulations on how, when and where you may appeal for a lift, with most not allowing any requests to be undertaken on highways, 
due to the possible distraction to passing motorists. When I think about Mr Doherty's assessment of how Lorraine and Wendy got into the vehicle at Oxley, the questions my mind automatically ponders are nightmarish. If he was accurate, if Lorraine convinced Wendy to get into the car, did she feel guilty when things started going awry? Did she apologise to Wendy? Was it guilt that drew her back to her captor's car at Norma Spurling's, if that was indeed them? What were their last words to each other? And their final thoughts? When I submerge my mind in the information pool of any case, it isn't really so much the known facts of the case that haunt me, but more so the unknown catalogue of thoughts of the victim or victims that really lingers with me. There is probably many commonalities experienced by victims of violent crimes, but there are three that really terrify me to consider, that I'm certain most, if not all of them, are unfortunate enough to endure. One, the uh-oh moment. This is when victims realise they've gotten themselves into a situation. Did they turn down a back alley and they've just heard a noise behind them? Did they accept a lift from a stranger and just notice a weapon or the absence of door handles? Have they heard a noise inside the house and frozen, questioning if they locked the back door before going to bed? These are the blood-run-cold moments in which your body realises before your mind even has a chance to that something has possibly started going very wrong. 2. The no-turning-back moment, where the first aforementioned victim turns to see a man behind her in the alley, intently focused on her, or when the last victim finally decides to investigate the noise they heard and gets out of bed only to see an outline appear at their doorway. There is no longer an option that their panic was unwarranted. Gut instinct tells them that this isn't going to be a welcomed interaction. Machine gun fire of what-ifs and scenarios start flooding their minds, if they're unfortunate enough to have the time to conjure them. 3. This last moment is harder to define. Maybe the moment of acceptance? When they realise there is no escape, and that whether they do or don't make it out of this scenario alive is no longer up to them. Or maybe it's more definitive, and it's the moment they realise they aren't escaping with their life. This will be the end. When I ponder these situations, personally I don't really fear the pain. I've seen multiple stories of people having entire limbs bitten off by great whites, and not experiencing any pain until well after receiving medical attention, if ever. The human brain is amazing with what it can do to increase our chances of survival. This survival response, known as fear-induced analgesia, can occur during exposure to high-stress stimulus, resulting in pain transmission and perception being potently suppressed. I can only hope that it is afforded to victims of physical attacks. Not so easy to evade, would be the crippling panic and unimaginable terror. That I fear endlessly. One thing these horrendous true crime stories give us is perspective. Oh, you've had a bad day? Were you abducted, bound, terrorised, possibly gang-raped, brutally beaten to a pulp and discarded like trash? Didn't think so. As Eric points out in his book, when you really stop to consider what victims have gone through, it's impossible to feel sorry for yourself. What are your limits truly? Are you actually that cold? Is your pain really that bad? I want to make it clear that when speaking with both Judy and Tracy while researching this case, neither woman has ever tried to push their opinions into the podcast. 
they've respected my approach to mostly let the official narrative speak for itself, and to let the official documents themselves point out the issues. They don't want you to listen to them or what they think. All they ask is that you take the time to assess all the evidence for yourself, with an open mind. I want to thank both women for taking so much time out of their own lives to answer all of my questions. I would never have been able to mould all this information into a cohesive narrative without their assistance. And thank you to Judy for providing a lot of the photos used as visual references throughout the series to help you understand who is who. One quick last-minute correction I wanted to make is, I've been pronouncing Wayne's nickname wrong. It was Boogie, not Boogie. Better late than never, I guess. I'll save the story of his namesake for another day. Judy Laurie's book is titled Murphy's Creek Murders, Through My Eyes. Not only will it give you great insight into her recollections of a number of men, including the persons of interest, but there is her first-hand account of an individual advising both her and her husband prior to the second inquest that at least one of those being named was being dobbed in as payback for an unpaid debt. She includes additional evidence established through public records, including electoral rolls and numerous newspaper articles, and looks at each person of interest individually, listing exactly why she doesn't believe the evidence in the case points to any of the men identified. She's also compiled some impressive additional information. For example, the distance from Norma Sperling's house to the mother's houses of each of the persons of interest at the time, as well as other individuals whose names arise throughout the inquest. If you're interested in looking further into the case, I recommend considering the additional information you'll find in her book. I'll include links to her book in our show notes. I will also put links to both of Eric's books, referenced throughout these episodes. They are titled The Echo of Silent Screams, The Gold Coast Hitchhike Murders, first published in 2003, and The Ricochet of Echoes, The Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans Murders, released in 2015. His first book shares engrossing memories of growing up on their family farm, letters he received from Lorraine while away at basic training in Kapuka, and honest accounts of heartbreaking discussions and letters between himself and his mother regarding Lorraine's death. At times, he strays into heavy speculation as to how events unfolded and what the women might have endured, but I imagine that's possibly part of his coping mechanism, so it's easily forgivable. The final part of the book is dedicated to the memory of Lorraine's childhood, filled with their adventures and tales that I have no doubt she was just as fond of as he clearly is. His second book follows his journey through the inquest as it unfolded. It not only gives brave, raw insight into his personal struggles throughout the years to process what happened to Lorraine, but the impact it had on their entire family. According to Eric, within a couple of weeks of the remains being located, a joint cremation ceremony was held in Toowoomba. I found it strange, but he says that, quote, the girls' bones were mixed, there was no other way, the ashes were divided, end quote. I'm not exactly sure how that would have occurred. Tracy confirms that the descriptions in the police file match the coroner's claims that the skeletons were laying several metres apart, and there is no indication that the bones were mingled at the scene. In any case, after the cremation, the respective families then laid the women to rest. St George Hospital in Cogra installed a brass plaque atop a sandstone slab standing approximately 30 to 45 centimetres, in honour of the women. It reads, quote, in memory of Wendy Evans and Lorraine Wilson, PTS, August 1973, July 1976, end quote, with PTS referring to preliminary training school. It is located outside the James H. Laws House, 
where they had been living while studying as trainee nurses. The conclusion of Eric's second book also speaks of his battle to convince the Toowoomba City Council to establish a plaque of remembrance dedicated to Lorraine and Wendy. The words requested by the families to be placed on the plaque, upon a memorial which ultimately, sadly never came to fruition, read, quote, This memorial is dedicated to Lorraine Wilson, 20, and Wendy Evans, 18, two innocent trainee nurses, their lives cut short by a senseless act of violence at the foothills of the Toowoomba Ranges on the 6th of October 1974. We hold the memories of these girls close to our hearts as a constant reminder that fear and intimidation must never again silence a community. End quote. Eric wrote that Betty Wilson once said that her biggest fear was that Lorraine would be forgotten. In the very least, I can only hope this podcast will serve to play some small part in keeping her memory, as well as Wendy's, alive. If you were a woman attacked by any man or group of men in Toowoomba or the surrounding area within the relevant time frame, please consider sharing your story. Details of your crime could possibly corroborate details of this crime. People, locations, events, patterns of behaviour, the smallest piece of evidence can make all the difference. If you or someone you know has any information you believe is relevant to the murders of Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 33 000. The reward offered for information in this case is $250,000. If you're enjoying the show and haven't already, please subscribe to Reward Offered on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your true crime fix. And if you're feeling generous, we'd really appreciate if you'd leave us a positive review. When I randomly chose this crime to cover as the first case on Reward Offered, I had no idea where it would take me. It's been a mountain of work. I've written over 50,000 words or the equivalent of a master's thesis on the case but I truly believe there is important questions that need to be asked and answered here. I fear the cracks in this mirror and the associated trauma may have extended further than they ever needed to. The journey down the rabbit hole is certainly not over. We will no doubt be revisiting the case again in the future, and I'm eager to hear the views of anyone with a keen interest in the case. Our email is rewardofferedpod at gmail.com, so please reach out if you have anything to share. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at reward underscore offered. And don't forget to join the case discussion in our Facebook group, Reward Offered Case Discussions, and share what you think. Do you believe there was enough evidence to publicly name the persons of interest in this case? Or that the existing evidence was sufficient to have labelled Wayne Hilton a murderer? If you are close to a case that you would like us to cover in the future, please send us an email with the case details and we'll be in touch. The only requirements are that it be an Australian case that's unsolved and has a reward offered for information. As we wrap up this series looking at the murders of Lorraine and Wendy, I'm giving you some homework for the case. I'm going to be reaching out to police with some questions. If after looking at the evidence you believe you have a good query to include, shoot me an email with the subject Murphy's Creek Police Questions and I'll include the best ones. I'll also be sure to let you know what, if any, response I get from police on a future episode. And with that, it's a wrap. We'll be back again soon for the next episode of Reward Offered. Thanks for listening. Ring, ring. Hello. <laughs> I'm 
believe that. I don't believe that's how you answer your phone. So, uh, who knows where this project will take you? Are you there? Can't even get a bloody hello. <laughs> I'll read the other part to you, right? So, you're, I'll give you some direction here. <laughs> okay, what's the direction? Um, okay, so we'll probably do it a couple of times and just see how it turns out. Die. <laughs> Mate, you fluffed it in the practice round. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, okay, all right. 